You know, one of the things that is always reoccurring in our lives is how quickly the holiday season comes upon us. It's like you blink and you wake up and boom, it's Thanksgiving again. And every year the holiday season comes and it's, Christmas is right around the corner. I think for many of us, when we look at the holiday season, we have one of two reactions. We have one of anticipation, one of celebration, and the other we have the word, what I would call uh, stress and anxiety. How many of us are filled with anxiety when the holiday season comes? Instead of celebrating, we are anxious because of all the preparation that has to be done. Uh, ABC News had an article that stated, holiday stress brings anxiety and abuse. Uh, one of the interesting observations of this article, it said this, that while many people do enjoy the holiday activities during Thanksgiving, Christmas, uh, uh, Hanukkah, and New Year's, for others, the season is marked by increase in depression, alcohol, substance abuse, suicide, and domestic violence. We see more of it in police reports and emergency hospital visits, said Jennifer Taylor. In other words, the holiday season, instead of making us happy, makes us anxious. Well, it's not just because of the holiday season. I think there are other things in our lives that makes us anxious. As we look at a survey around the world, one of the things that we are seeing is that the anxiety level of people is on the increase. Not just in America, but all across the world. And what's sad is that our children are being affected by this anxiety. Over the last decade, anxiety has taken over depression as the most common reason college students seek counseling. In an annual survey of, of American College Health Association, they found that uh, the increase of undergraduates reporting overwhelming anxiety has increased uh, dramatically in these last 10 years. So the question is, is, why is anxiety such a big part of our society? Why are we so worried when the holiday season comes? And I think one of the things that, that often we forget is that our anxiety is intensified when we see the world from our perspective. When our problems are focused, we see how little money we have, how, 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 how much in debt we are. We see all these things around us. And the bigger our problems become in our eyes, the bigger our anxiety becomes. And so the question this Thanksgiving Day is, how can we be thankful in the midst of anxiety? How can we be thankful when we are constantly worrying about the future? And here is sort of the antidote that God gives to us, that the way in which we deal with worry is not to focus upon the problems that we have, but rather to focus instead on how our big our God is. You know, when we see God being bigger, our anxious or anxiety actually decreases. If I have one big idea this morning, it's this, that the greatest demonstration of gratitude is not what God gives to us, but really who God is and what he does through these five things we're going to look at. I believe that the way in which we deal with the worries and the anxiety of life is refocus our attention and our focus on who God is. Isn't it funny how when you look at a problem and the closer the problem is, how big that problem becomes? You stand next to a wall, and, and you just focus on an area of that wall, and you see that wall, and you're intensifying your attention on that wall. Then that wall becomes your whole world in reality. Sometimes the Bible asks us to step back, and instead of looking at the wall, look at the bigger picture. 
And this is what this psalm does. As we look at David's life, there is one thing that we notice throughout the, uh, the psalms, and these are a collection of, of poems, collection of music, uh, lyrics that he wrote, that one thing that comes out is that David is a man of gratitude. David is focused on thanksgiving. He writes that God establishes covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And, and after that establishment, when David becomes king, Nathan comes and uh, appoints, uh, anoints David. And David immediately writes this psalm of thanksgiving in 2 Samuel 7. He says this, Who am I, O Lord God? That, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this small thing in your sight, O Lord God, and you have spoken of your servant's house of great while is come. And then he says, you alone, O God, I am your servant. You have done great things. Therefore, O Lord, there is none like you. One of the things that David does is that even though he is now the king of Israel, that he re- recognizes that he is actually grateful to God who is the king of Israel. I believe that one of the ways in which we can deal with our worries and anxiety is what I call gratitude replacement. You know, you talk about, a lot of people talk about hormonal replacement when they're going through hormonal balance. I think gratitude replacement is really what God calls us to do. That when you worry, when you're anxious, be thankful for what God has given you. Many years ago, there was a, a pastor when I was in a youth group, uh, he talked about, he called it thank therapy. And what he did was, he had, he had been going through a miserable day. And he had just been going through a, a day in which uh, uh, some, everything went wrong. And you know, isn't it funny how our perspective changes when one thing goes wrong, another thing goes wrong, another, it's sort of like the domino effect of wrongness. And he was going through that, he was grumbling before God, he was complaining, and God why are you doing this to me? And, 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 and the thought came into his head. And maybe instead of blaming God for everything, what if I just started thanking God for everything? And one by one, instead of, like thank, instead of seeing the problem, he started to thank God. He said, thank, God, thank you, God, for the sky, it's blue. Thank you, God, for uh, the air that I breathe. Thank you. And as he was driving along, the problems that he focused on started to sort of become less. And his gratitude, what he calls thank therapy, replaced the grumbling. And that illustration stuck with me even to this day. Because here's the thing in life, right? That everything has negative and everything has positive. And it's just the way you look at it. A glass is always half full or half empty. And so thank therapy reminds us to thank who God is and what he has done. So in one, Psalm thir- uh, 138, the psalmist begins to write. And there are five things that I want to highlight. Because I think these five things help us refocus. And here's what we are thankful for for many of us. When we are thankful, we are often thankful for what God does for us. So we thank God for a new job. We thank God for our marriage. We thank God for our babies. It's sort of like we thank God because he has given us something. Here's what the psalmist is saying. Rather than thanking God for what he gives to you, rather thank God for who he is, what he is, what he does. And because of who he is, it changes our perspective in what we deal with in our lives. So let me look at this psalm and just sort of dissect it. There are five things I want us to look at. And here's the first thing that we can be thankful for. We thank God for his preeminence. 
We thank God for his preeminence. He says this in verse 1, we need to thank God for who he is and where he is in our life. He says, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing you praise. I bow down your holy temple and give thanks to your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Here's the first thing he says. that The thing that we are to be thankful for is that God is the supreme being of all our, of our lives. In other words, someone asked me this question. The question you need to ask yourself, who is the God of your life? It seems like an obvious question, doesn't it? God is the God who created the heavens and the earth. But really, if you think about this question, what is the most important thing in your life? What is the thing that you seek after? What is the supreme thing? Who is first? Who is what I would call your life quake? Who shakes your reality? Tim Keller compares this whole idea of life to what he calls a life quake. He says, when a big truck goes over a tiny little bridge, something Sometimes there's a bridge quake, and when a big man goes over a thin uh, uh, place of ice, there's an ice quake. But when Jesus Christ comes into a person's life, there's a life quake. Everything is reordered. If he was a guru, if he was a great man, if he was a great teacher, even if he was a genie of a lamp, there would be some limits on his rights for you. But if he is God, you cannot relate to him at all and retain anything in your life that is non-negotiable. Anything, any view, any conviction, any idea, any behavior, any relationship, he may change it. He may not change it, but at the beginning of the relationship, you have to say this. Is everything he must have supremacy in my life? Now, when you think about that, that's a pretty big statement, isn't it? That you are to place God at the very core and very top and very central aspect of your life. It reminds me of what really the first commandment is. The very first thing he demands of his people of Israel is this. Worship the Lord your God. That there is only one God. And he, here in the psalmist, psalm he says this, I give thanks to you, O God, O Lord. The, the word O Lord there is the word Yahweh. He is the one who is the one and supreme creator. And he goes this, I worship you, I praise you, I give you thanks with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. Who is your God? So often, the reason that we worry so much is because the things that we worry about are the things that are related to our idols. We worry about money, if we worry about relationships, if we worry about this or that. Really, those things can become our idols. Martin Luther defines God as this, that to which we look for all good, in which we find refuge in our time of need. To have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe Him with your whole heart. As I often said, trust and faith of our heart alone make both God and idol. That to which your heart clings and entrusts to is your God. So here's the question. Who is the preeminent person in your life that you are to give thanks? And for us, I think we are giving thanks to God because of who he is. But here's the thing about God. 
It's not this abstract vision of God in which he is up in the clouds, kind of in his little cloud. He has this beard. He's sort of throwing down lightning bolts. That's sort of the image that we have of God, this distant father or grandfatherly being who's out to punish us. But you know, the two words that describe God in this passage is pretty remarkable. If you look at this in verse 1, he says this. I'm sorry, verse 2. He describes this God not as one of judgment, not of one of wrath, not of one of power, but instead he uses two words to describe God. Verse 2, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your what? Steadfast love and your faithfulness. The reason that this God is preeminent is not because he's just in a high position, but because he is loving kind. Because he is faithful. By the way, the word loving kindness is an interesting word. It's the Hebrew word hesed. It is used uh, throughout uh, the, the Old Testament. It's the idea of unfailing love, loyal, devotion, kindness, often based in a prior relationship, especially a covenant relationship. Hesed is the love that God loves. And it is not a love of just emotion. It is a love of action. I like what one uh, writer said, like other Hebrew verbs, hesed is not just a feeling but an action. It intervenes on the behalf of the one that they love and comes to their rescue. After Abraham's servant miraculously found a wife for Isaac by bumping into her at a well, he praised God who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. So what does hesed look like? Hesed is the bone-weary father who drives through the night to bail his drug-addicted son out of jail. Hased is a mom who spends a day after a thankless day spoon-feeding and wiping up her disabled child. Hased is the unsung pastor's wife who suffers long, tearful prayers that keep her husband from falling apart. Hased is the love that can be counted on. Decade after decade, it's not the thrill of a romance but the security of faithfulness. The psalmist declares that we can be thankful because God is on high. And that position not only is one who is governing all things, but he is one who loves you to the point that he's willing to die for you. When you see a God who is preeminent like that, who's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and yet who's willing to get down his knees to wash your feet, it reminds me of a God that we serve is an amazing, great God. But there's a second point here. Not only are we to worship, thank God for his preeminence, we are also to thank God for prayer. Notice what he says. I, I love this in verse 3. He goes, on the day I called you, you answered me. My strength and my soul you increase. Here's the thing that he's saying. Not only is God preeminent, he's on high, he also is so low that he listens to the prayers of his people. Think about this. That God hears your smallest, tiniest, weakest prayers. When you think about that, it, 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 it amazes me. Sometimes when you're uh, working at a company, right? and you're working hard, you know, you're this measly uh, sort of worker peon in, in this company uh, organizational charts. The CEO doesn't care about you. As long as you get your job done, he doesn't care. And yet it's the opposite here. Not only is the God of the universe that he cares 
for you to the point that he listens. Notice this. On the day I called you, you answer me. My strength and my soul you increase. You know, I think one of the things as Christians is, is that one of the biggest battles that we fight is the battle for prayer, isn't it? And sometimes we pray the most when we feel helpless. And that's a good place to start. But prayer really is the essence and the sustenance of our spiritual life. And, and one of the things that, that we are to be thankful for is that we have, think about this, we have the direct hotline to God. We have that sort of red phone that we talked about that we can call God directly and he hears us. And he strengthens us. When I think about the vitality of what prayer does, as E.M. Bounds once said, prayer is not the preparation for the battle. Prayer is the battle. And when we pray, that we begin to see that God hears and listens, and he cares. And that's what prayer reminds me, is that when we pray, it's not that God has just a checklist but that God cares for the deepest needs of our lives. What are the things that we pray about? Our marriages, our children, our jobs, our finances. This may surprise you when I say this, but I, I, I believe this. That God cares more about those things than you do. That God wants the very best for us. And as we seek him in prayer, we are reminded that it is only God who can ultimately answer. What are the things you pray for? You know, sometimes uh, as, as a pastor, you know, we pray for things and we move on, and we pray for things and we move on. And I think one of the things that we lack in our prayer life is just to give gratitude for what God has already answered. To say, God, thank you for that. And, 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 and one of the things that, that people recommend is, you know, uh, write your prayers down and just reflect back. How has God answered you? Because sometimes we forget what God has already done. And when we forget what God has already done, then our problems become bigger because our become smaller. So he begins by saying, we thank God for prayer. But there's a third aspect of God that he thanks. We thank God for his position. Now, he's comparing, God is, uh, the psalmist is comparing God with all the kings. But then he's also talking about his position. Here's the position that God desires of us. Verse 4, all the kings of the earth shall give thanks, O Lord. For you have heard the mouths, uh, words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the Lord, uh, glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he, is, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Here's the thing that God desires for us. And this is why we are thankful for who God is. His position is on high, and yet God desires for us. One of the most important things is that when you see who God is, how humble that makes us. So what is humility? If you look at all the traits of the Bible, this is one of the things that pops up over and over again, is that God desires a, a humble spirit, someone who is not haughty, but somebody who is humble. So what does humility mean? Well, I think uh, as Andrew Murray defines humility, a humble person is not one who thinks lowly of himself. But a humble person is simply a person who does not think of themselves at all. You know what makes, I think, Christians such a, a, a powerful force if they are living the Christ-like life is that they are humble people. And it's not because of position, but it is because of their attitude. One of the things about pride is that pride is what separates us from God. 
but it's humility that brings us closer to Him. I think about all the world's values. The world uh, sort of elevates people that are powerful. They elevate people that have a great personality or they have a lot of possession. But in the Christian life, the greatest thing that we can have before God is a humble spirit. And to be thankful for that. And humility regards others better than yourself. In other words, a person who is humble doesn't see themselves in their position. They see themselves in the light of God's position. And here's the key thing about humility. It's not necessarily how you feel, but it's how people feel around you that defines your humility. Let me give you an illustration. Many years ago, there was a, 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 a prime minister. Uh, Queen Victoria had a crime, two prime ministers. One was, was William Gladstone, a man of dignity, a man of distinction, and the other was a man named Disraeli. And she said this, and it's a very subtle comment she made of her uh, prime minister. She said, of William Gladstone, when I am with him, I feel I am with one of the most important leaders in the world. But then on the other hand, she confessed, when she was with Disraeli, he said, he made her feel as if I am the most important leader in the world. Notice the subtle difference. A person who is prideful makes you realize how important they are. A person who is humble makes you realize how important you are. The Christian life is a life in which we are to elevate those around us. Humility is marked by how we treat other people. And secondly, how other people feel around us when they are treated by us. Robert Sphere, um, was uh, many years ago, was a president of a small uh, college in the South. And, and the school had limited facilities, and so they had a guest speaker come who invited him, uh, and Mr. Spear was supposed to speak the next day. And he says, I woke up early in the morning, and when I heard someone tiptoe to the room, I lay there quietly with my eyes open to see who was walking in the room. And to my surprise, it was the president of the university. He walked in, picked up my dirty boots, and walked out. When I got out of bed, opened the hallway, then he got on the floor and began polishing them. I could have cried that at the sight. This president of this university took my boots and began to wash them. His hospitality and thoughtfulness showed me what a great man he really was because he was humble in spirit. And when I think about what Jesus did, imagine Jesus the King of kings, the Lord of lords, coming down, taking off his clothes, getting on his knees, and washing the feet of the disciples, loving them to die for them. It's the attitude in which we are to be thankful for. And the more humble we are, the less we see of our problems, and the more we help others with their problems. But there's a fourth part of, of who God, what God does. We are thankful for his protection. In verse 7, he, he makes a, a sort of a, a statement that is very similar to Psalm 23, where he talks about, even though I walk through the valley of the shallow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. He says almost the exact same thing here in verse 7. He says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Fourth thing that we can be thankful for is God's protection. 
And here's the thing, that God protects his people. There are things that we don't even know what God does behind the scenes. It's like, have you ever seen, when I was a little boy, there was a cartoon called Mr. Magoo. You guys remember Mr. Magoo? Some of you are really old remember Mr. Magoo. Mr. Magoo was literally blind. And he would walk along, and things would happen around him, and other people would, like, help him, and he wouldn't even know what was going on. I think we as Christians do not understand how God protects us, how God guides us, how God leads us. And sometimes in our frustration, in our moments, we cry to God, God, why aren't you here? And God is, like, out here holding up all the things around you so that the walls don't collapse. He says this again, though I walk through the midst of trouble, you preserve me, you protect me. You stretched out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. You deliver me. The word protect is to cover and support. It is the idea of of bearing up against. It's the one in which he holds. And you know what the image that Jesus gives? is? Jesus says this, I wish I could be like a mother hen protecting you. That's the way God protects. And throughout the Bible, one of the ways in which we can deal with anxiety and worry is to sit back and say, God, thank you for your protection. Thank you for protecting me through this situation or that situation. I remember uh, one time, this happened many years ago before we merged with uh, Sunkiss. Many years ago, uh, over 10 years ago, another church came to us in Garden Grove and, and offered to sell us their building. And we were, uh, at that moment, ready to move on from, from, we were in Buena Park at that point, and we wanted to uh, get our own building, and the price was going to be really cheap, and, and we were working through the whole process, and we had a 98% yes, they had like 90-something percent yes. We're all ready to move. Before, two weeks before the move, they call us up, and they say, I'm sorry, but I don't think we're going to sell it to you. I go, what? We, we have a legal agreement. We went to an attorney. We paid for all these fees. And he says, I'm sorry, but, but he, and the, the man said, I feel like uh, you're not the people that want to sell it to. And I said, so is, is it about the money? And the guy goes, no, it's not about the money. Well, I find out later, a year, uh, later he sells, sells the building to a Buddhist temple and it, for a million dollars more. So, so <laughs> we kind of joke, okay, it wasn't about the money, but it was, it was a little bit more than what we offered. But I remember that time. I was so discouraged as a pastor. Because we had been leading our congregation to this point, and I said, I think God wants us to get this building. And, and I was really convinced that this was the way to go. And then God reminded me, this was a journey you had to take, but because of that journey, we ended up in a city called Brea. And we ended up at the Curtis Theater, all because that we couldn't get this facility. And here's what happened. Immediately after that, 2008, the economy came. And all these people lost their jobs. We had vice presidents. We had people that were working in corporate, all lost their And I thought to myself, wow, God protected us. And you only recognize God's protection in hindsight. When you look back and you say, you know, God, thank you for us not getting that, even though I wanted it so bad, that you are the one who provided at the right time. And so the blessing that we have now is that God, is the one who protects. One of the most beautiful pictures of peace in an art gallery was a painting depicting of a, of a raging waterfall in the midst rising of a falling water. And on the other side was a branch with a mother bird in her nest with young chicks. 
And in the picture, and it was entitled Peace. It was this raging water. Perched in this little nest was a mother protecting her little young. And I think that's where peace comes. Peace comes from knowing that God protects us. God cares more about our well-being than we do. There's a fifth thing that we can be thankful for. We can be thankful for his purpose. Notice what he says in verse 8. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hand. Here's the last thing we can be thankful for. And I say this to all of you in this room. Think about this. That all of you in this room have a purpose for God. All of you in this room, that God has something designed for your life. He has a purpose, he has a plan, and he has a way in which he's going to fulfill that plan. And here's what we need to be thankful for. That our life matters. That what we do matters. That we are not living in this random chance of existence, just going through life, getting as many toys as we can, and so at the end of the day, we could just say, okay, I've lived my life to the fullest, No, God has a better plan than that. God has a better purpose than that. You know what separated David from from Saul? Saul saw his plan and purpose as for himself. David saw his plan and purpose for eternity. And I think when we see God from that perspective, you know what it reminds me? That there's, things do matter. Our jobs matter. How we choose. Deal with our children matter. Worship matters. So here's a question. Going back to number one, who are you living your life for? Who's the God of your life? Because when you live your life for yourself, instead of having gratitude, you have anger. When you live your life for something bigger, then you have gratitude and you have thankfulness. Christopher Parkening, uh, considered by uh, some of the world one of the greatest classical guitarists, achieved his musical dream by the age of 30. By then, he was a a world-class fly-fishing champion as well. But he writes, his success failed to bring him happiness. Weary of performances and recording, Parkening bought a ranch and gave up the guitar. But instead of finding happiness, of getting it away, his life became increasingly empty. He wrote, If you arrive at a point in your life where you have everything that you've ever wanted and thought that would make you happy and it still doesn't, then you start questioning things. It's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, and I had thought, but what's left? While visiting friends, he attended church and, put, and, and he heard the message of the gospel, and he's placed his faith in Christ. Parkening developed this hunger for the Bible and was struck by one verse, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. He explains, I, I realized there were only two things I knew how to do. Fly fish for trout and play the guitar. Well, I am playing the guitar today absolutely by the grace of God. I have joy, a peace, and a deep-down fulfillment in my life I have never had before. My life has purpose. I've learned the firsthand true secret of genuine happiness. You know what makes you happy? Is God. 
And when you seek God with all your heart, soul, and mind, then that becomes the source of your happiness for everything you do. Your relationships, your job, your activities. There was another composer many years ago. He wrote this. The main purpose of my music is to glorify God. Some people do with this, with this music is simple. I haven't chosen to choose a simple style, but my music comes from my heart as a humble offering to the Lord. This honors God no matter what musical style I use. And at the front of every single piece he ever wrote, you know what he wrote? Sola Deo Gloria. Only for the glory of God. That composer was a man named Johann Sebastian Bach. He realized that every single thing had a purpose. And so as we celebrate Thanksgiving, Let's not just thank God for what he has given to us. Let's not just thank God for our, our, our house and our family. Yes, those are things to be thankful for. But let's be thankful for the Lord, that he is the ultimate source of our happiness. He's the ultimate source of everything we yearn for and desire. And once we are happy, then life has purpose, as God is our sole source 